Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to him, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. As was his custom, Jesus went to the temple very early, it says, to teach. And when Jesus taught, he frequently sat down and would teach the people. And that is what we find him doing in this occasion in John chapter 8. And there are two groups of people that come to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees that are mentioned in verse 3. The scribes were those Jews who had made it their life's work to copy the law of God. They would copy and, and make other copies of the law of God. And because of their close association with the Word of God, they were recognized as experts in the law. And then we see another group of people here, the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees was a particular Jewish sect that were especially antagonistic to Jesus because the message that Jesus preached so many times contradicted the things that they practiced. And they knew that if Jesus were to prevail, they might lose their, their place of prominence before the people. And so we see these two groups of people come to Jesus in an antagonistic manner because they're going to try to embarrass Jesus, and they're going to try to impair his influence among the people. As we get into the text of our lesson this morning, I want to take a look specifically at the difference between the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees that we see here, and Jesus. Because there's a big difference in their approach. Their approach to sin and how sin should be treated. Their approach to God's Word their attitude, and their heart. And I think if we understand the difference between these scribes and Pharisees who were in their own minds very religious people serving the one and only true God versus the attitude of Jesus who was God, that we can learn a lot of valuable lessons ourselves because, let's face it, we in the church have the truth, don't we? If we're teaching from the Word of God, we are teaching God's Word. And we know that there are lots of other people who are claiming to serve God, but they don't have His Word. And it is a challenge, I believe, 
for those who have been entrusted with the Word of God to maintain the proper attitude and humility towards that Word. Let's begin, first of all, with the Jews. I would like to suggest to you that the Jews that come here to Jesus in this particular situation are brutal. I would like to suggest to you that they are hypocritical. I would also suggest to you that they, contrary to their claim of great religiosity, are actually very irreligious. I suggest to you that they are cunning and also that they are malicious. And let's look at this as we read through the, through the text and notice these things. First of all, I would say that they're brutal. In verses 3 and 4 it says that the scribes and the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman who was caught in adultery and they set her in his midst and they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very Now, this was no accident that they happened to have this particular woman that they could bring to Jesus at this moment. She had already been arrested by the religious leader. She was already awaiting a court trial to see what the punishment would be for what had gone on. This was a premeditated act of knowing, hey, we have this person over here awaiting a particular hearing Let's use this person and see what we can do to embarrass Jesus and impair his influence. And so they bring this woman in, violating many other aspects of the law. Aspects such as mercy, kindness, tenderness. Bring her in this cold and cruel manner and bring her before the people And their only motive was their selfishness, to make themselves gain advantage over Christ. How brutal they were with this poor victim of their plan. And then I suggest that they're hypocritical because they come in verse 5 and they proclaim that they really have a great reverence for the law of Moses. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned, but what do you say? In other words, we, we believe the law of Moses and we know what it teaches. And we reference the law. We love the law. And so we want the law to be pursued here in this particular situation. But we want to see what you say. We want to see, Jesus, if you have as much reverence for the law of Moses as we do. They really cared a lot about the morality of the people. In verse 9, we see that even the Pharisees and the scribes were immoral people because Jesus had said, He who is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her first. And verse 9 says, They were convicted in their conscience. They knew that they were not living perfectly according to the law. And that they were to be judged as harshly as this woman was, they would be found guilty as well. They addressed Jesus in verse 4 as teacher. It was a term of reverence, and so they come to Jesus uh, almost mockingly saying, Teacher, you're such a great teacher, we want to hear what you have to say in this situation. But we know in verse 6, it says, They said this, testing him, so that they might have something of which to accuse him. And then they come and say, You know, we, we just can't understand what to do in this situation. We need your help. 
We've got a very difficult situation. But Jesus reminded them of what the law said. They knew what the law said. All they had to do was do the law. But there was a problem with that. They were definitely hypocritical. And they were irreligious. They were making light of an erring soul and they were making light of the Savior. We know that true religion is to love God and to love man. In this particular situation, they were doing neither. They were cunning and malicious and this cruel plot they had, they thought they would get Jesus because if Jesus said that this woman should be stoned, then they knew he would get in trouble with the Roman rulers because it was against the law of the Roman conquerors that they could execute anyone without their approval. So they thought they had him there. If he says, yes, follow the law of Moses, we'll get him as someone who's violating the law of the Romans. And if Jesus says she should not be stoned, then they thought they had him there because he would be violating the law of Moses that says someone in this situation should be stoned to death. So here's a dilemma for Jesus. And they thought they had him. But contrast this with Jesus himself. Let's look at how Jesus answers this particular dilemma. And let's see how Jesus handled his detractors here in this situation. First of all, Jesus, of course, is God. He's omniscient. He has perfect knowledge of the situation. He knows what the intent of the scribes and Pharisees is. He knows what they're trying to do. He, of course, is full of wisdom, and we'll see that demonstrated. We also see that uh, Jesus is powerful, and he uh, is able to deal with this particular situation. We see his holiness and his tenderness and mercy all reflected in how he responds in this occasion. Jesus knew what their attitude was. Jesus, I believe, saw something worse in these accusers than he saw in the accused the woman who was caught in adultery. He saw the real character of the adulteress, someone who had sinned and done wrong. And he saw the real character of those who had come to test him. Jesus refused to get involved in judging this. First of all, that's a sign of wisdom. Sometimes we're presented with troublesome issues and we don't know what to answer, but our first inclination is, well, I'm going to answer something. But Jesus shows a lot of wisdom here by refusing to do so. He didn't like the way that they had framed the argument. So it says in verse 6 that Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. This I read is actually a custom in this society that if someone knew that they were being challenged to present an argument, they knew they were being drugged into some sort of situation that they did not want to get involved in, they would draw on the ground letting the person know that they heard them, but they're not going to respond with an answer. And the Jews know what he meant when he did that. So it says in verse 7 that they continued asking him, and the word there, continued, means they just kept on and on and on asking him for an answer to this particular problem. And Jesus gives them an answer in verse 7, and then it says in verse 8, he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, how did Jesus answer? Well, he knew they knew the law. They had repeated it to him. So what Jesus does is, instead of going to the law for the answer, he takes it to the matter of their conscience. 
He takes the issue here presented to a higher level when he says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He threw it back to them, but not on the basis of law, but on the basis of conscience. Because he knew that they were not perfect. He knew that they were sinners. And the effect of this, we see, had a very crushing effect on those who thought they had him in a dilemma that he could not get out of. It says in verse 9 that those who heard this saying of Jesus were convicted by their conscience. And they began to go out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. You can almost imagine the scene here of Jesus stooped down to the ground where he'd been scratching in the dirt. The woman caught in adultery, shamed and embarrassed, not even lifting her eyes up. And this circle of men standing around him, old men, middle-aged men, young men, coming there with this ill intent in their hearts and having this powerful response given back to them, And then as they were convicted in their conscience, they began to leave one at a time, beginning, it says, with the oldest. Just see the older men shaking their heads. Because the wisdom of their years and the wisdom of the things that they had seen, they were first convicted in their conscience, knowing that everyone has sinned. Everyone is guilty before God. All the way down to those who were left, the youngest finally realizing what had just taken place. In His holiness, Jesus examines a certain amount of calmness in His demeanor. He's vindicated the law of Moses. He doesn't disregard the law. He says to the woman, Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He is able to forgive the sinner, but he condemns the sin. And showing compassion on her and his tenderness and mercy towards his enemies. He didn't even have to say much to them, did he? He didn't respond with some sort of long dialogue about the law and, and, and how they hadn't been observing this particular aspect of the law. He just threw the matter to their consciousness. In John chapter 3 and verse 17, in fact, Jesus had said that He came not to condemn, John chapter 3 and verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Matthew 18:11, Jesus also said that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He did not come to condemn people, but to save people. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, we have, I think, a great illustration of this lesson. And that is with David. When he was king over Israel, if you'll turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you can read how David had committed a grievous sin against God by committing adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And to cover up his sin, David ultimately has Uriah killed or murdered. 
until we see that David, another one of God's great leaders, is an adulterer and a murderer. But he's trying to hide this sin. And so it says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, in verse 1, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you to your master's house and your master's wives and to your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. David, in this particular situation, when Nathan comes to him, is a lot like those scribes and those Pharisees. When he hears this parable of the man, the rich man, who had everything and yet he took the ewe lamb away from the poor man, David is filled with indignation that someone would do such a thing and pronounces a judgment, and that this man would be executed. And Nathan says to David, you are that man, because of what you have done with Bathsheba and Uriah. David was guilty of the sin he was condemning others for doing. Just like those scribes and Pharisees were guilty of violating the law of Moses and yet were trying to pass judgment on another without examining even their own lives first. And I want to suggest to you that we can be like that. Many times we act like David or we act like the scribes and the Pharisees with our brethren, with other people. We throw rocks such as gossip, whispering, or backbiting. If there's someone that we feel like has done something wrong, instead of going and discussing and trying to work out that situation, what we do is we stand and throw rocks at that person by going to see someone else about their problem or spreading rumors about them and what has gone on to other people. Sometimes we have an unmerciful or an unloving attitude. We see people who are in sin, people who have committed sin, and we judge them. 
or perhaps even it's someone who is, by their own admission, our enemy, and we know that they have done something wrong, and instead of going to them and trying to restore them, we're happy in that situation. We're glad that they've done something wrong. Or we have the same hypocritical attitude towards others that these Jews did, or hypercritical. We're always looking for faults in others. We can always look at any particular situation and know, and we're able to pass judgment, and we're able to execute judgment, and know everything that's happened in that situation. And feel that we're qualified to be the judge of everyone, every situation, everywhere. Do we have our rocks ready? I want to suggest to you then that if we do, we need to realize that these kinds of rocks inflict a great amount of pain on other people. They scar people, sometimes permanently. And they can kill. They can kill a person's initiative and desire to serve the Lord. They can cause a person who was inadvertently caught in sin, if it's not handled the correct way, to feel like everyone is just constantly judging them and looking for them to make mistakes. Not to say that we never have to make judgments, because we know that the Bible does, but what we have to do is we have to be aware of our attitude and our motivations in those situations. So how can we put our rocks down? Well, first of all, I want to just let you know that it is possible. We don't always have to go about judging people, judging situations, and passing judgment upon others. It is a, we are able to get over that. First of all, we have to look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, there in the Sermon on the Mount when we are told that if we really want to be able to help someone, then we have to, first of all, be able to see what the real problem is. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And secondly, we've got to be careful about the proper attitude when we do approach someone. Look over in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. There's some really good points there. Galatians 6 and 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness and considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, Jesus says, those things that we would like other people to do to us, we ought to do unto them, what we call the golden rule. And if we practice that and ask in every situation, if I was in their shoes, how would I want someone to respond to me? And then finally, I would like to suggest that what we have to do is, is remember that there's a lot of issues that we have no business judging in whatsoever because they're matters of personal opinion or personal conscience. 
Look at Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. In verse 1, Paul says there is a realm of matters that are within an individual's own personal judgment, his own personal conscience. And in verse 3, he says, we are not to despise or look down upon a brother if we disagree with him in this realm. And in verse 4, he says, we are not even able to judge in this realm that a person will stand before God on his own. And then look down in verse 10 of Romans chapter 14. But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. God will judge in the realm of matters of personal opinion. And we will stand before God alone upon that. And if I disagree with you and you disagree with me, and we realize that it's a matter of personal opinion, then the Bible says, I have to accept you for that. I cannot go around condemning you for what that may be. In the context here, he's talking specifically about certain things that were issues in the church at that time. For instance, following certain diets. Because the law of Moses had commanded that the Jews could only eat certain things, clean, what were considered clean foods. But here we live under the New Testament. That is no longer a law of God, Paul is saying. And if it does not violate a person's conscience to eat, then he may do so. But if a person still wishes to follow that diet, it's okay, he says. That's up to him. It is not a sin to do one or the other. And we cannot judge in that matter. Sometimes we're all too ready because we know the Word of God. And we have the mindset that is is very important to have, that the truth is in the Word. But we have to remember that we're human. The Word of God is perfect, but we are not. And so we have to be very careful when we try to pass judgment on others, and especially that our attitude is correct when we do. That we go with the attitude of love, an attitude of mercy, an attitude of, I might be wrong, and you might be right, and we can learn from each other. And if it's a matter of personal opinion or personal conscience, then instead of being ready to stone a person for having that, we have to be able to love them and talk with them and find that in actuality we agree on 99% of things. And we shouldn't war at each other for that 1% that is in personal opinion. And we have to see that it is pure hypocrisy to feel that we could never fall. 
that we have never violated God's law. That we are above anyone or for having done anything. The church is not composed of perfect people. You know, we'd probably be better off if we put a, a sign under our sign out front that said, Sinners meet here. We would probably be more apt to draw people who are searching for help for their sin. And we'd be less inclined to think that we've got it all together. We have to be like Jesus, able to condemn sin and extend mercy. Are you here this morning and not a Christian? And before we depart this morning, we're going to extend to you the invitation of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you are weary and you are heavy laden, to come unto me and I will give you rest. If you're here this morning and you would like to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we stand and sing at this time, we're going to offer you the invitation. Or if you're a member of the Lord's Church, but you would like to request, request the prayers of the congregation, we encourage you as we stand and sing to come.